Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we're joined by Kelly Colzer Reyes from Club 21 in Pasadena, California. Kelly is going to talk about self-determination. Self-determination is a way of taking resources that you get from your state and molding them in a way that could be more useful for you and your family. It is something that I've seen, the words, but I know nothing about. So when we met her at the Togetherness is Better Walk, and she offered to come on the podcast, we jumped at the opportunity to learn and to pass the information on to the community, something that may seem overwhelming and feel overwhelming. We're going to break down step by step in a way that makes it more digestible to create our plan of self-determination. So welcome, Kelly Colzer reyes Good morning and welcome to our podcast, Kelly. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. This is our first time really meeting. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Kelly Calzareyes. I am a mom of a young girl with Down syndrome. Her name is Amelia. I'm also the mom of two kids without Down syndrome. Their names are Noah and Simon. Um, And we are a Club 21 family. Uh, We found Club 21 when Amelia was five months old. So we had a birth diagnosis of Down syndrome. Uh, It was a bit of a surprise, but it wasn't a kind of a surprise that devastates the world. Like I think some people have different experiences. Ours was, you know, surprising. That's about it. So um, I have been an English professor at Taft College for, I guess, 15 years or something like that now. So I came to disability kind of through Taft College as well, because Taft College is the home of the Transition to Independent Living Program, which is also really cool. So when Amelia joined our family, it was kind of like a natural progression in all of the things I had been doing professionally, but then it really ramped up my interest in advocacy. So when Amelia was born, we found out that we couldn't save any money in her name, that she could had to be impoverished in order to qualify for services. And I thought that doesn't sound right. I'm pretty sure that there's a problem with that. So I got involved with passing the ABLE Act, which is the Achieving a Better Life Experience Act. And then as time went on, I learned more about the world of disability, especially like focused on intellectual and developmental disability. I went to uh, complete additional graduate work in disability studies. And now I get to teach these classes for Club 21 Learning and Resource Center in Pasadena, um, which is our home for Down syndrome, um, actually. And we found it early on in our Down syndrome family member journey, I guess we'd call that. So could you tell us a little bit about Club 21? Because we, Stephen and I have heard of Club 21 for the majority of our journey. And we have some really good friends. That's what brought us to the walk where we met you. But I think it was just that we never, it's the 
the whole thing about having a village. We we never really were village people, but we just we I think it was with all the advocacy and fighting and especially the energy that goes into education and advocating for that, we've never gotten to Club 21. I think that people find what they need at the right time often. Uh, in our case, we realized we were going to need to learn a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, and that was how we found Club 21. And we decided like, this is, we're throwing ourselves into this. And if we like this place, we'll keep going. We're gonna try it once. If we don't like it, we won't go back. And we found this warm embrace of a community that for us was, we didn't even know that we wanted it like at the time. I don't know that we're village people ourselves, uh, but we've actually created quite a few um, villagey moments. And I'm very grateful for that because Nancy uh, Lidikin, who is the executive director at Club 21, with her amazing team, she does not like it when people say that she did this. It is a huge team, but she's the face of the team. Uh, she made us feel so welcome and so loved and so supported. And we are not uh, connected to a church community. We're not a, a religiously focused family, but we're more secular in our, our raising of our kids. But this was kind of like that community that I had had in childhood that I, I kind of missed, but didn't realize I had missed. And we've never left. We have been active at Club 21 for nine years. And every time we need something, there is some way that someone there has been able to be instrumental in helping us get to the next step. Whether that's an IEP support with the amazing IEP support people they have there or speech, uh, another just a view of Amelia's speech and how she's doing with articulation or the talk tools training that they brought in just for our families. Or if it's been like the dad's community, my husband has been connected to the dad's group for some time. That's dad's appreciating down syndrome. All of these pieces put together have been like the right thing at the right time in education. We call it like a just in time service, right? So for us, we didn't even necessarily know that we were in a place where we might have wanted some of those supports. And it has just worked out beautifully. We have been involved in educational partnerships, IEP trainings. My son is in SIB shops, which has been just a great resource for him. He's 11 and he can go and talk to other people who have siblings with Down syndrome without feeling like he has to explain anything. He can just be, which has been a, a real delight, I think, for him. And those kinds of, of supports have been really meaningful for our family. And we've really enjoyed, enjoyed our friendships there. And now that I'm working a lot with the self-determination program through the regional center system, I have a lot of friends who I've helped get into the self-determination program. And now we support each other and we have our trudging buddies as um, my friend Nancy calls them. And so I don't know if it's so much as a village, but like, how, how are you going to get through that IEP? That's where the village is. You call, I call Susanna afterwards. I'm like, do you know what they said about my daughter? And then she's like, oh girl, let's talk. And so we're all talking and we all connect with each other. We have a big group of people who have kids about the same age 
and we love each other and we support each other. And if you had told me before Amelia is born that I would turn into a village person, I would have told you you were nuts. I said, there's no way that I would be that person, but I'm grateful that I was in the right place at the right time to find Club 21. It has been an incredible gift to our family. That's right. It was a together is better walk. I just even love the the name of the walk. I do too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about not knowing that you're a village person, but that having that community, it's something that we've discussed. I think we try to do it alone or like in our case, I think it just felt like when you're going out into society, especially in those first months where you're receiving all of this feedback, which is startling, you know, there's so many things that really made us just go inward and say, this is our bubble. And I think it can be scary to step outside and look for a safe space because when you get hurt at that place where you're so vulnerable, it just makes you very cautious. Yes. And actually, I'd love to add on to that for just a second, because one of the things that I think a lot of people really struggle with is that unsolicited feedback. And I think that we got less of the unsolicited feedback because we were there and we could just learn with the speaker series and listen to these experts and then take from it what we wanted. I had to create my own bubble also. And I just, I think I still have it. It's like my protective bubble around my family when we're out in public. I'm sure that I'm not the only one who does this, but like just don't touch my kids, don't hug my daughter. And it's exhausting. That actually makes me grateful that Club 21 only happens on the second Saturday of the month because the rest of the month I'm tired. You know, so the second Saturday is the day that everybody gathers together to hear that speaker series or to have the sib shop. So it's just the one day a month. And I find that manageable. We met you at the Club 21 event, and I was introduced to you by, I believe it was the director. Yes, Nancy Lidikin is the person who introduced us to each other. That is correct. And we quickly got on the conversation of self-determination. Self-determination is a really big program, and California is not the first state to do it. We are a little bit behind. We're lagging, but we are one, I think, of 18 states that have programs that are funded in this way. So I don't know what you guys already know about the self-determination program. We know nothing. We know <laughs> we know nothing. And that's why we were so excited. Perfect. Because when you started to explain what it was, I was just like, this sounds amazing. And I know nothing. And overwhelming at the same time, because we don't know anything. It is. It's both overwhelming and amazing. And I think it's overly complicated. Or unnecessarily complicated, I think is a better way to say it. But it's an amazing opportunity for our loved ones who are regional center clients. Okay, so what happens in the regional center system in California, and we know that that's funded through the state, right? This is the Lanterman Act, and it protects uh, individuals with IDD. The California Supreme Court upheld this law. And so we have an entitlement in California, whereas other states do not, to ensure that people with disabilities have access to what they need throughout the lifespan, okay? So that doesn't mean it's always done very well, but we have a law that's in place to do this. What the self-determination program basically is, is I sit down with Amelia's circle of support and I create a person-centered plan, thinking about what her goals are, what our goals are for her, 
And then we figure out ways to make it to those goals. One of the things I like to say is until Amelia proves me otherwise, Amelia will be independent in adulthood. She will be a taxpayer. She will have a job that she chooses. I mean, as much as is reasonable, right? And um, she will live a life of autonomy and choice. And she is going to be in charge of those decisions. That's just like my own little mantra to get me going. So when I'm looking at self-determination, I think, how do I get her to that point? And maybe that she'll be interdependent and maybe she'll need lots of supports. That's okay. That just means that she's part of planning those supports in the self-determination program. Whereas in the traditional system, like what we have right now for everybody in California who they start in the traditional system, you have a service coordinator, the service coordinator says, oh, looks like your parents are tired. They should have respite. So then what you would do in the self-determination program is you would say, okay, whatever we spend on respite, now I get to take and put into Amelia's plan and use the funding the way we see best meeting her needs. Okay, because the traditional system says, oh, we have respite, you get 20 hours a month of respite, the end. Now in self-determination, I take the money that would have funded traditional respite. And for our family, it's art and cooking classes. It's a community integrator who goes with her to classes in the community. It's uh, adaptive horse, horsemanship or things like that. And adaptive skills, like things so that she learns the skills she needs to be um, employed and employable in adulthood. We know people with IDD who have adaptive skills, following directions, able to understand the nuance of smiles and eye contact and those pieces are more likely to be employed than people without those characteristics or those skills. So I'm everything we do, even if it's just a regular cooking class, she's listening to instructions from someone who's not me. She's listening to instructions and following directions and not always very well from somebody who's not me or not her dad. She's doing things to prepare her for an adulthood of success, choice and autonomy and independence. So everything we do in the self-determination program in our family is leading to the goals that we have that are long-term. And for a lot of people, if they're not thinking about long-term goals, what's going to happen in adulthood is not going to be that impressive. It's going to be like a, just a continuation of what happened last year, just like for people without disability, right? If I'm a non-disabled grown-up who has no goals, I'm still not going to meet them because they don't exist. But if we have these forward thinking goals, which is a huge part of club 21. If you have no goal, any path will get you there. But if you've got a goal, Hey, you've got to get to that goal in some way. And so I use the self-determination program for Amelia in order to get to those goals, get to the places where we want her to be in adulthood. And she's nine right now. And we're already working on job exploration. Like she has to clean those horses hooves. She has to like clean up after her horse, put things away, do all that stuff. And all of those things are helping her develop her interests, which helps get us towards jobs of choice, not jobs where there's a work crew or not a sub-minimum wage opportunity, which is another thing that's changed here recently. There are lots of pieces that you just have to keep practicing to get to an adulthood of, you know, of the choice and autonomy that I want for her.
So how do people go down this avenue of self-determination? All you have to do is if you're already a regional center client, you contact your service coordinator and say, we would like to explore self-determination. They're going to tell you that you have to take an orientation. A lot of them are uh, like connected to the regional center websites. People can do those right now. And you could just take the orientation right now. Um, our regional center in Kern um, has a, an online portal. You sign up for it and you take the orientation. And then as soon as that orientation certificate is complete, you can start that process. There are like, there's basically a to-do list. Um, and actually Disability Voices United is an organization and I serve on the board for DVU. And that organization has a book, actually I have it right here. Let me show you. It is called Think Outside the Box. And it is basically has checklists in it. You say, okay, I did piece one, I did piece two, I did piece three, and now I can move forward and I know what I'm doing next. So for people who really are those independent village list people, you can do it independently and that's okay. If you prefer to figure out figure it out independently, some regional centers are amazing and they will help you and they'll do great work. And some regional centers are less than amazing and you may wanna connect with a person-centered planner or an independent facilitator who can help navigate that process with you. And one of the things we do at Club 21 is we have learning circles. And that's one of the things that I run for Club 21. Um, it's a self-determination learning circle. And I basically broke down the orientation so we could go more in depth into each main topic and I help people get through that process independently. Some of them leave the class and they say, okay, I'm gonna go try this on my own. And some of them say, I think I want uh, someone to hold my hand through the process. And it just really depends on your level of comfort and your understanding of how the regional center system works. But those five classes are basically two hour chunks. And each of those, I've scheduled them like on a Sunday afternoon. So we have this little group together, 10 to 12 families kind of getting together and understanding it, talking it through, doing activities, creating that person-centered plan, brainstorming what unmet needs and changes in circumstances are. That's how your budget can change. For example, if you had a son named Liam, for example, and you say Liam has respite right now. And you know that um, puberty is coming soon for Liam. And you want to make sure that there's a sexual education uh, component uh, that he is comfortable and understands what's coming and it's not in his IEP. What's going to happen is you can do two things. The regional center is going to say, oh, put that in your IEP. It's a generic resource. And then you, you get like a denial from your IEP team and say, oh, we actually don't have time to continue like do that as well. So the regional center then has to fund for that service. And that's where you get those unmet needs adding to your budget. So that might be a little skip ahead a little bit too much. But um, what, what helps with that is to understand if you've got a need that's not met, that can change the amount of money that the regional center allocates to your self-determination program for you. Each self-determination program plan is basically like a mini grant. If you've ever done like grant work or project management work, basically it's let's plan for all the parts. We budget for all the pieces. And when we need more budget, 
we figure out what those that could look like and then we add it to the budget. It's a little more complicated than that, but in, in, as far as a big picture goes, project, goals, meet the goals. If there's no goal, you can't meet the goal. Like there's no service, just like in an IEP, if there's no goal, there's no service to meet the goal, right? So you can't just say, oh, Amelia would really like to learn how to skydive because, you know, nine-year-olds are skydiving all over the place. If you go to skydiving as your, your thing, she really wants to do this, that's not going to get funded unless there's a specific goal that will somehow address that. And I suspect that'd be a hard one to, to pass. But it would be like an example of something that maybe Amelia wants to do. She has no fear, no appropriate fear. And she would love to jump out of an airplane, maybe. But you can't just fund for that. You have to have it be something that's a recognized need. The goal has to address it. And then there are services and supports that connect to each of those goals. Well, supports that come to mind for me is speech and things that we've heard. But even just the cooking class or the horsemanship that those are really out of the box thoughts and and it's encouraging to hear that that is a possibility well you look at especially coming off of a pandemic or we're still in a pandemic and a lot of our families still haven't returned to school and so there is a gap of a year and a half of socialization that has not happened and that's a main concern for neurotypical kids they're addressing the heck out of that with mental health but nothing for our kids they don't it's just not a concern it's like our kids don't exist in a pandemic. That's my experience. I'm very grateful that we're homeschooling right now through a charter or home study, whatever we call that. And that our IEP addresses our actual needs. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I, if I, I'm glad I didn't go through the process the way that I might have. But I think what, with you're talking about the communication and the speech, right? The, what the regional center is going to say is, well, your generic resource for speech uh, for a school-aged child is school. So if it's not in the, if, if you have speech in the IEP, uh, then you need to, then that's what you have. Uh, and then if you want additional speech, you have to use your private insurance first, which we've all heard before. So your private insurance takes care of that. And if you have Medi-Cal, then you have to go through Medi-Cal. And if you don't get it, you have to get a denial from each of those because not everybody has habilitative speech in their insurance. I mean, my insurance is incredible. I would never put speech into my um, plan because that's not something that we're lacking. But if you are lacking that, for example, lots of school districts will not address the medical reasons for speech disorders like childhood apraxia of speech. I've had a lot of families have trouble getting that addressed in an IEP. So the IEP team denies it. The insurance maybe doesn't, isn't accepted by certain apraxia experts. And so I need to go into my self-determination funding to be able to get the apraxia of speech covered within my self-determination program. So those kinds of things you can do, but those denials from insurance, denials from the school district, denials are in writing are still going to be important in this case. And once you've uh, decided to do this and you talk to the regional center, you go through the orientation, you make this change of format or however you want to call it, uh, the change in this service, this is something that is ever evolving, you're saying. So once you have these monies and then use the budget the way you feel is best for the goals of your child, 
That's something that is updated on a yearly, like your usual meetings with regional? Yes, just like your IPP, exactly. And then we look at the goals. We look at what we've spent the funding on and how it has addressed those goals. And we talk about how that's getting uh, going better or going worse, whatever it happens to be. Um, And so for in our case, we had moved into self-determination at the beginning of the pandemic, basically. So we ordered because we have elopement issues and we have lots of need for physical activity, right? We live in a small house, we're in California. And so we wanna make sure that we're using the space we have. We do live in a house in the mountains where we have space outside. So we ordered a swing set, uh, a play play structure. And so her only community for the last 20, I believe it is now months, has basically been her brothers and then our friends who teach the art and, and cooking class. And that's our bubble. Uh, it has been until just this past couple of months. So they play on this structure. It keeps her in the yard. The elopement has reduced. She um, wants to be American Ninja Warrior, which, you know, great. So she does all that activity every day. And she is so happy to be like on her swing, just swinging and all. And that's Honestly, that is a lot cheaper than ABA. And we've been able to uh, use that so efficiently. I think it's quite frankly, the best money that any regional center has paid for any item in the history of services to individuals. It is what saved us in the pandemic. We had no staff, no one could come into our house. No one would come to our house because we're in the boondocks. And this kind of self-determination purchase has literally saved the regional center like thousands and thousands of dollars of ABA because ABA is extremely expensive and Amelia doesn't have a dual diagnosis of autism and Down syndrome. So our insurance doesn't cover it. Their insurance, like it doesn't get covered. So they had to pay for it. And then we just reallocated funding to work on the elopement uh, using this kind of a tool instead. That's the kind of thing that makes, I think, self-determination pretty cool. So I had some questions of little things you've said along the way. And uh, one is you mentioned a community integrator. Yeah. What is that? And how do you find them? Because I think I know it's like a personal BII, like what you have at school. Is that right? It could be somebody like that. Yes. But in the, is it kind of like that, but in the real world? In the real world. So it's a term that I either invented myself or stole from somebody else in the organ, in the community. I don't remember at this point. So it could be somebody else's term. There are different definitions in the codes that are used within self-determination. One of the codes is called community integration supports. And so what I do is I use the language from those definitions and I create supports based on their own definition. So it's a lot easier for them to say yes. Like, just like in grant, right? And I don't know if everyone's got the grant writing background, and I know that doesn't make it very helpful. But one thing when you're writing a grant is you have to write to the specifications of the request for the grant. So I'm basically using the same skill set, and I just create that community integrator, and you just 
put in the job responsibilities, explaining, and then putting it into terms of the definition of what community integration supports do. And I just share that job description with anybody who wants it. So if you guys would like a copy of it, I'd be happy to share that with you. It's no problem. Um, but what we do with that community integrator is in what I have done is instead of having somebody who's doing the ABA supports with my daughter, I have someone who's helping her create that community integration. I am not a huge believer in ABA as an organization. It's a very medical model system. It's like something about you is broken. I'm going to train you to not be broken by using this system. Um, and I know that it's really looked at differently in different communities. That's just my view. Um, so I would rather have a community integrator doing that work than an applied behavioral analysis, working on those things with my daughter. So I created this community integrator position for her that helps her when she's at an art class. And then I get the respite. That's the traditional system, right? I get the rest from having to be the person who's constantly there with her. And then we also get someone who's not us supporting her with those skills. And what I've chosen to do this year is get the ABA person that, who used to work with her at school and I'm paying her to go with her to these other classes. And so that has worked out quite well. And that's how I find people, like people we love who've worked with her in the past. We just see if we can hire them on the side. It can be problematic if they have a non-compete clause or something for their own employer. I don't want anyone to get in trouble. I just want to make sure that we have as many supports for people that she loves and respects as possible. Also helps us because we know then who's there with our, Absolutely. With our child. Uh, is this a long process? Like if I said tomorrow, I wrote an email and said, I've done the orientation. I want to switch out. How long is the process typically? really depends on your regional center, but they have come under more pressure from the Department of Developmental Services to get people through faster. Uh, I would say a really well-organized regional center, um, and I'm not going to name their names, but some of them can do it in about two months. That's the short end. And then some of them can do it in about eight months, could be the long end, maybe longer, um, depending on how many disagreements you have about the budget and about the spending plan. Because each of those parts become a meeting. It's a lot of work on the front end, but it's a lot less work ongoing. So it's, it is work. Like, it's not like somebody else is going to be doing that work for you, right? You would, in the traditional system, a service coordinator would be making those calls. Maybe you make the calls yourself because you want to save the money in the plan and not pay someone to do that kind of work for you. I actually choose to keep my independent facilitator who helped us get into the program because I also hire somebody. I don't do, or I could do Amelia's myself, but I want to just be her mom. I hire somebody else to do it. And that actually helps my sanity. So that's another gift to myself in this process, because then when there are phone calls, I don't want to make, I pay someone else to make those, but the process can take between two and eight months. I'd say for most regional centers, uh, if you are served by a less efficient or a more, let's call it hands-on regional center that doesn't really embrace the concept, it's a lot harder. It's just, it's harder to get in. And when we first talked, you had mentioned that there's, because we haven't used our respite in 
a while because of the pandemic. And you had mentioned there's a like a backlog because you used to be able to roll your respite hours over and now you can't anymore. But um, you had mentioned something about, or maybe I misheard about uh, getting those hours back. That's actually called unmet needs. So there are two ways to improve your budget or change your budget. One is through unmet needs and your need for respite has not changed, right? The pandemic made it impossible for you to find staff that was appropriate for your needs. And so they were unmet. So for example, some, some regional centers only give 20 hours, even though there's no cap on respite anymore. That's all they do, 20 hours. That's the thing. Some regional centers do 100 hours. Some regional centers do 40. Whatever you have, your unmet needs can go into your budget. And it's not the amount they spend on your staff. It's the amount that they reimburse the re the, their vendor for. So if your vendor gets $28 an hour for respite for your family, even though they're paying your staff $15 an hour or $14 an hour, you get that whole 28. So you would multiply your total number of hours buy whatever your reimbursement rate for the vendor is to find out what your budget might be. If you just kind of want to get an idea of what your budget could be, uh, there are a couple of ways to do that. One way is to ask for your cost statement. The cost statement is the last 12 months of spending on your loved one. You could also think, okay, I can look through the IPP and find all the things that have been authorized and how many hours for each thing have been authorized, and then just do math. It's not that bad, just mathematics, and just do some multiplication, and you'll be fine. You get an estimate. Now, that won't be the same as a certified budget. That's your, uh, that's your goal, but if you want to say, okay, I like to find out, am I talking about $30,000 or $130,000? And which would like, which one could I use more efficiently? Maybe that's where you start. Some people have a, a, an $800 budget. Some people have an $8,000 budget and some people have an $800,000 budget. I don't want to have an $800,000 budget because that means my child's needs are intense and immense. I'm happy to have the budget that we have. Um, and it's been plenty to make, meet her needs. You had mentioned Disability Voice United. Yes, Disability Voices United. That's right. That's an organization? It is. Um, is that here or is that national? No, it's here. Um, we are an organization on the board. I was invited to join the board some number of years ago. And our goal is to um, make it possible for everyone to have the same access to the self-determination program. Um, and make sure that people who are in the regional center system get their needs met, whatever that looks like. Is that something people can join and how, if they can? They can. And what's really cool about Disability Voices United is we have part of our website is an interchange. And it's like all of the self-determination webinars that we've put on for the last two years, helping people learn what, an, what a financial management service is or what an independent facilitator could do for you or any questions that, have, that come up. There's a webinar already out there for you and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
uh, for example, we do lots of trainings for independent facilitators. So we had a project for that for quite some time before the pandemic, of course. Um, I did trainings in Spanish for our independent facilitators so that we could increase the number of Spanish speaking um, independent facilitators in the state because that is a huge unmet need statewide. So all those little the, the pieces where there are gaps, our organization tries to help fill them with trainings, with webinars, with supports so that other people can enjoy the benefits of self-determination if they choose to. There's never pressure from us to do it. I think it's a superior program. It has better served my family. It is more work for me, but I'm happier. So like if there's a benefit to the work, I'm often happy to do work. Our lives are better in self-determination than they were prior to self-determination. I don't mind not using the funds that exist because I like I'm a taxpayer. I don't want to just use money because it's available. I want to use the money efficiently. Like I don't think anybody I've worked with is saying I I need more money so that I can just burn it. Like I don't think that's how it works and I think the government entities are, were really nervous that people were just going to want to burn it because there's so little trust I think between families and the regional center system. We've, we actually entered almost a year, I think a year and a half ago into the program and it has been absolutely life-changing for us. We made it through the pandemic, I think in large part because we had access to be, being able to create our own bubble and keep our family safe. One of the things that we experience, especially in IEPs, is this community gets put into a mindset of the assistance is a favor and to be grateful for whatever you get and not ask for much. And it could be taken away. And it can be taken away if you don't do the right thing or say the right thing or be kind or be polite or, you, you know, it's the same thing with IEPs. And the focus is lost on what the monies are there for, what we're actually trying to do and who we're supporting. I mean, it just gets lost. It's one of the most frustrating things about an IEP is that it just gets lost. Like nobody's actually concerned with educating our son. They're concerned about not upsetting the district or, you know, just what there's, it's just the focus is lost. I feel this feels like it's a bigger focus where we can, we know how to serve our kids. We know how to support them. We see them every day. We know what could benefit them. We know what they love. We know what motivates. And I think it sounds brilliant. I want to find out how you had mentioned, or you could get someone to hold your hand. I want to find out about getting someone to hold my hand through this process. And also you showed us a picture of a book called Think Outside the Box. I believe that's from the Disability Voices United. How does one get that book? Can we have a link to it? Yes. I Okay. So the website is disabilityvoicesunited.org and you can order copies of the book on that page. There are two books that you're going to see on the Disability Voices United publications page. One of them is called Profiles in Self-Determination to help people understand what they could be doing or what they were hoping to do prior to moving into the self-determination program. And one of those cases was my family. And it was to help people envision how they hoped to use the funding differently. What that does for families is it gives them an example of what you could do, not what you should do, but, oh, I never thought of 
adaptive horsemanship uh, for my daughter. And wow, she really likes large animals and her speech improves when she's talking to the horse. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things that thinking outside of that box um, really help. Those two publications are both available. I think one is $25 and I think the other is 20, but um, it does say on that website and I will send you the link to that. Even if you're not going to do self-determination, what a great tool to um, have more insight and to be empowered to other ways that you as the advocate can support your child. Because I feel that we do most of the work and once we've done the work and it's the result as a parent, then other people are willing to do Then like, there's no denying in the IEP now that front loading uh, and having the time to do his math, he's, we've created an independent math doer, right? So now there's no way that they can take that back. There's no way that they can't, they can deny the ability. And so that book can give us some great ideas of how to reach those independent goals. You know, so working, what are we working towards every day? We can work towards that. Eventually, I feel like the pieces get filled in. Um, I hope that the support gets filled in. Um, so I wanted to, but I do want to know about how to find someone to hold your hand. And then you also have a web series coming up in January through Club 21. Is that open to just California or? So that's a great question. It is a very specific to California's rules learning circle. And I would suspect the benefit for that would be Californians. Now, other states have other programs that are very similar. They're called self-directed services. And actually it is a, a system within the Medicaid area. So the Center for Medicaid Services that is increasing. So our program is a little bit different other uh, states, like they just get an amount of money and it's not based necessarily on what was spent last year and they can opt in or whatever. And I'm not an expert on those other states programs, but I know that there are some states that do an amazing job. New York has a great program. Uh, Michigan has this, I believe Minnesota has something similar. And I think I could find the list of the 18 states that are already in, if that would be helpful to you guys. Yeah. If we could have a link to that, we could list them. That would be, that would be great. I want to talk about, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to the hold, hand holding because yes. for anybody who's listening to this, like for me inside, I'm just like, it's so much and my brain feels like it's going to implode. Like when you think this seems like a great idea, but how do I do it? I want to throw up. Yeah. Uh, but that book with checklists, I do well with checklists and not to be overwhelmed and say, I, I have to finish the whole book right now. Just one thing at a time. That's doable, right? Make doable goals. Yes. With the people who are doing the learning circle with Club 21 for self-determination, we actually buy those from Disability Voices United and we send them to each family who's participating in the program. And it's not because it's like this really interesting book that has a great storyline and plot. It has nothing to do with this. I love the checklists. I, I show people on the pages in my little PowerPoint, this is on page 95. <laughs> on page 95, here's your checklist. This is what you have to do first. This is what you do second. Oh, I'm not quite sure I agree with this. Take out a pen, scribble this out. Your regional center might do X, Y, or Z differently. Just write in it. It's, it's something you write in. It's a, it's, a, it's a document that's supposed to help you get through this process in a less painful way. 
Like it shouldn't need to exist. This shouldn't be complicated. But once you learn how it works, it gets a lot easier and it is an investment. And I think a lot of us who have younger children err on the side of focusing so much on school right now that we forget once school is over, we need to have that plan in place so that there's no cliff. There's no like, oh, transition's done, 22, boom, we got nothing else. That's not a reasonable path for anybody. So no matter where people are listening from, the person-centered planning idea, a whole life plan, what does life look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, right? The, the lifespan of a person with Down syndrome is increasing. What we do need to do is say, okay, where, what do supports look like after school is over? What, does, what kind of job are we looking at? And then like making sure she has the adaptive skills to make the life she wants to live really a reality for her. You know, those are the kinds of things that anybody listening to this could get right away. Figure out what you want as far as a, as a life. Um, and there are other ways to do this. It doesn't have to be with the uh, regional center system or whichever kind of program you have in your own state. Because what you're really looking at is this kind of idea of what does life look like in the area of health, in the area of safety, in the area of education, in the area of employment, in community living, in whatever part of life, in recreation, whatever it is, so that you're planning for the life that you want for your loved one, not just the life that appears to you at the time. Instead of being reactive, it's being proactive in lifelong planning. No, you're right. The education system does get overwhelming. It does because it's horrible in so many ways for us. That's an hour um, in itself. But one word you said was process. And I think if you look at it as a process, as a journey, and that we are taking steps. So right now, if you look at the whole thing, it can be overwhelming. But if we say this is a process and we just do one thing at a time, well, this time next year, we may have everything. We may have decided it's not for us, or we may have created a great plan. We don't know what five or 10 or 20 or 50 years are going to look like, but we can work to create it. Okay. So in, in education, we have uh, like this mantra of begin with the end in mind. What is the end goal? What are we trying to get to? And then how do we build those steps into everyday life it could be regional center supports. It could be school supports, could be anything, but what are we were trying to get to a point? What do we need to do to build, to get there? All that front loading has to happen. All of those pieces have to happen. I'm going to actually say that, write that down for uh, your IEPs when you're sitting there and they're proposing goals. What's our end goal? Yeah. Not just where are we right now, but where do we want to be in two years, five years, 10 years? Um, those are the things that are so difficult. It's such a big part of advocacy that we probably don't talk about enough. We talk about being in the moment, which is such a great mantra to do, but we need to look at the future and we need to plan for our child and be the voice for them. Uh, not even after we're gone, just after they're independent, after how do we build the life for them that they're going to want? Well, I think it's a combination. I think it's a combination of being in the moment and having an end goal. You're, you're in the moment because you're thinking of what do I want? What do I want to create? And then 
how am I moment to moment mm, getting building there? that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, uh, it doesn't totally abandon that presence in your life, which I always strive for Liam's presence because he's so present in every moment, but look at the cello, you know, six months ago, he couldn't reach the, the A note and he was struggling. And now and we just were like every day, we're just going to do it. That fourth finger. I mean, that on the cello, that's hard stuff. And he's, he's rocking it. He's getting the A note and he's so proud. He's so proud of himself. And so I think that you're, you're right. It is about still being in the moment, but then it's a combination of also having a plan. And when I say bring that conversation into your IEP, because I want to say, what's your end goal? Yeah, one time we got a horrible <laughs> answer from someone. So be prepared for somebody's end goal to be less than what yours is. But then, you know, you're, you're the ultimate voice. This is my end goal. How do we, how do we do that? how do we take the goals we've already agreed upon in the IEP or the IPP if it's the regional center and how do we build those to get to independent taxpayer, right? And I think that when I say that to a regional center staff, they laugh at me and and the inside, oh, Kelly, she's the one who thinks her daughter's going to be independent. I have no idea what kind of supports Amelia will have to have in adulthood, but if I don't plan for her to go to a certain place, there is no way she is going to get there because the school's not going to do it for her. We have to be thinking forward so that we can get somewhere. I'm not going to let her just exist in the universe. My grand, once when Amelia was born, my very sweet and well-meaning grandmother said, oh, don't worry, the government's going to take care of her. And I said, do you want the government taking care of you? Is that your goal for your, oh, well, no, like, then let's assume that she's going to need me to be pushing boundaries and pushing the world so that she has the things that she needs because she has an extra chromosome does not mean she does not have the exact same rights that I have. I, I want to get the link to the web series that you have in January. Um, you want to give a little bit of information on that web series and how people sign up and who it's for and, and whatnot. So the club 21 uh, self-determination program uh, learning circle that I'm running for, for the club 21 community, you have to be a member of club 21 to sign up. And I think it costs a hundred dollars. That's just to make sure we have buy-in and people actually show up. It's five weeks straight. There are two week sessions. I record the sessions. I use a canvas learning uh, management service um, shell to put all the information in. I have little discussions. There are little quizzes, very few students do them, but they're a way for me to just double check that people are understanding the material that I'm presenting. I've been a teacher for two decades and I wanna make sure I'm hitting the points that I think I am hitting in class. Uh, So it's basically a class and anybody who supports an individual with uh, Down syndrome, like our community is a Down syndrome community. So uh, anyone who supports an individual in California would be a wonderful participant. And you just have to become a member of Club 21 in order to do that. And that's a Zoom meeting? It's all virtual. Yes, that is correct. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for families to participate. The, the February session would be very important to sign up for if that's something you think would help you hold your hand along the way. 
so that you can at least understand what you're going, what, what's expected of you. And if, if it's something that you don't want to do, you'll know that by the, probably by the end of that class. And you'd have a better idea than just doing the orientation for the self-determination program uh, on its own. Because then, then the families that are with you can help you brainstorm what you'd like to do. And that becomes its own little support and village. So we have our own village people. I love the village people. I just was thinking the more you say self-determination, the name of the program initially overwhelmed me because it's self. So I feel like oh, I got to do this myself, determination. And I, I always, again, you go back to any um, process that you went to to get any support for your child. And I think that that just feels isolating. But when you were saying it just now and post our conversation, I want to shift that focus in my brain to be more of I'm going to be self-determined. I think that's wise. I think one of the things about this that sounds scarier is it sounds like you have no support to do the program. But in reality, if you've got it first, you could have an amazing service coordinator who really wants to help you do this. Because if people went into social work as a career choice and that's what they're doing, this is ideal for that. They went to graduate school in, in social work in order to support people live lives of choice and, and, and make decisions for themselves. And that's perfect for that. So for, if you have an amazing service coordinator, ask him or her what self-determination looks like at, with their organization, get the information from the inside. They may not be allowed to say certain things, but they might be very frank and helpful. And you just, you you won't know until you ask. If they've never heard of it, it might be time to request a new service coordinator. And that's okay too. Absolutely. If you don't have the right coordinator, request a new one. That is your right. Yes. In any service that you have, don't feel like you have to settle for something that you just know doesn't work, that right. uh, feels like a burden. Do that person a favor and, and, f and let them go them. and find somebody yet, yeah, free, them, free them and then free up that space to get the support system that is actually doing that and supporting you. And then with that knowledge and with that support, then you're empowered to determine the self that your child, your young adult, your loved one gets to be. Mm -hmm. And that is the self that they are like that. Everybody, everybody has that right. And sometimes this journey makes us think that some of us have less of that right, but that's not true. That's a misperception. We all have that same right. Yeah. And having the information out there empowers you. Even if I was thinking about your big checklist as you were going and honestly, I, that was, you know, it's a lot, but I think if like, well, in January I can do this and in February I can do this and, you know, and give myself that time, then one step at a time that I can, I can do that. I can do that. I think that the, the checklist helped me as well, just to keep organized. So I don't forget pieces. And then if I don't know what one of the check items in the checklist means, then I go and find my, my village and say, okay, what is, what is this? I, I actually like that part quite a bit. Thank you for all of this information. I know going into it, I didn't know anything and I was overwhelmed by it. Coming out of this conversation, I have an insight and a plan, a plan, and feel like if I do this one step at a time, that it's doable. 
just take that pressure off. I know as parents, we don't need any extra pressure. So there's no pressure. Let's just explore it. It's something new. Having that beginner's mindset of let's see what this is and let's see where this goes. And hopefully that's that's a help. I know it helps me. I want to thank you too so much for the opportunity to talk with you about self-determination and Club 21 today. It's It's such a fun thing for me to get to do. So thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Likewise. It's been delightful. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and talk.